You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch Podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Gary and and Seth? Yes. Hello. We're here. Well, I brought you here to run an experiment on you. Are you are you in? As always. Well, go ahead. <laughs> okay. The idea is that uh, Rena Shakelesko, our assistant here on the show, is going to put some items in front of you. I'd like you to keep your eyes shut, but I want you to smell them and see if you can identify what they are. All right. Okay. We close our eyes now. By the way, this is Big Picture Science. I'm Molly Bentley. I'm Gary Niederhoff. And I'm Seth Shostak. Okay. This is the first item. Take a sniff of this. It's not unpleasant. Oh, I know what that is. It's, you know what it, sound, it smells like? What it smells like to me? It sounds like vanilla. Vanilla. Yeah. Yeah. Vanilla. Okay. Vanilla, you got that right. Well done. Okay. Here's the next item. Hmm. Yeah, that it's it's some, like some sort of aftershave lotion. It's Somewhat pleasant, clean, a little bit floral, maybe. That was scented body lotion. All right, so I nailed it. Okay, let's see. Uh, let's see how you do on this next one. Mm, I know what that yeah. is. That's oh, I n- just had that. No, I lost it. Yeah, no, wait, wait. Yeah, it's so familiar. Turmeric. No, I don't think so. Yeah, it's it's something you get on Italian food. Could it be basil? It's not basil. What is it? Which is pronounced basil. Would wait, it was. <laughs> Okay, Rena's sh- shaking her head. What is it? She says it's cumin. Cumin. That's uh, what I meant. What did I say? Turmeric? I meant cumin. Mm. So nailed it. And the two of you actually did very well. Thank you very much. Sure. Anytime. Yeah. It was smelliferous. Well, as we heard, and Seth and Gary experienced, smell is a powerful sense. So it's hard to imagine what it would be like to lose it. I had a cold coming on. I took a, a cold remedy, sniffed it up my nose, and immediately knew that something bad was going on because it hurt so much. Writer Bonnie Blodgett. I didn't in a million years suspect that I could have damaged my nose, but I did feel excruciating pain, a burning sensation, which I promptly forgot about. The next day it went away, and then my head filled up with very foul odors, and this is a phenomenon called phantasmia. And she couldn't smell anything else, only these ghastly, stomach-churning odors, all of which were imaginary. Smells of feces, dead bodies, rot, burning smells. It was terrible, and they didn't go away. So she went to a doctor. Well, first I went to my internist, and she thought that I needed to see a psychiatrist. (laughs) Uh, Medical doctors typically don't know much about smell, and she was completely baffled by this. I finally did get to an ENT, an ear, nose, throat specialist. And when I told him that I'd had a cold, actually, he asked me if I'd had a cold. And I said, yes. And he said, did you take anything for it? And I said, oh, yes. Why do you ask? At that point, he said, yeah, was it Zycam? (laughs) He knew immediately 
he and other doctors had heard from patients who had olfactory problems after using the Zycam nasal spray. And then he explained that the phantom smells were part of sometimes when people damage their olfactory system, this occurs. They, they smell things that aren't there. Um, and he was going to give me a pill for that, and I was simply overjoyed until he casually mentioned about 20 minutes into our appointment that, of course, I would not be smelling anything ever again. Bonnie Blodgett said it was devastating to lose her sense of smell and it led to depression, but she still pursued the why and how of it all. What is the physiology of how we perceive odor and how had she lost her ability to do so? Her book, Remembering Smell, a memoir of losing and discovering the primal sense. Bonnie, did you learn how this nasal spray, Zycam, could have damaged your sense of smell? Well, unfortunately, there's much about smell that is not well understood. And this is one of those things. It's a zinc compound that in some way, we don't know how, there are theories, but when you get just a little bit of it up your nose, it has no ill effect, but a, but a huge glob of it can literally burn the postage stamp-sized sheet of cells that are called the olfactory epithelium. And it literally burns them. I mean, it, it's very, very mysterious how smell even works, let alone why this might happen. But um, the way that we smell is by receiving odors that are actual molecules that come up our noses and hit this receptor sheet where all the identifying and labeling and so on takes place. And that's a, a function that involves the entire brain. It's very complex. All of this supposes that you have odor molecules to begin with, but in your case, you were, <laughs> you were experiencing phantom smells. And did you come to understand how it was that your, your brain or your olfactory system that had been damaged was producing these awful smells? What was happening? Well, again, we don't know. Uh, we can theorize, which is great fun. My theory had to do with evolution, and I thought, well, because you know these smells are also so terrible, my brain must be warning me against the things that I'm defenseless against now that I have no sense of smell. So maybe that's what's going on. Um, really, honestly, one of the researchers I talked to said, well, you know, maybe that's just the smell of a damaged receptor sheet. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's, it's simply unknown why phantasmia happens and why the smells are what they are. But um, it, it's some sort of an interaction that has gone awry. And these smells were truly awful. Yes. Oh, God, yes. And they never went away. They were always there. Well, they were always there until they weren't there anymore, and then you were left with no sense of smell at all. Yes. I was given a uh, an old-fashioned class 1 antidepressant called a tricyclic, which is kind of like a heavy-duty tranquilizer, I guess. It, it just kind of calmed my brain down and took the smells away. It took about five days. And then nothing. And what is it like to experience nothing when it comes to smell? The first thing to know is that it's not the same as having a cold. 
Um, it's tempting to make that comparison, but there is something called the retronasal passage behind your nose, um, behind your mouth, that allows odor molecules to go up into the brain, even when your nose is stuffed up. So you can smell, just not very well. Having no smell, imagine living in a sterile world, sterile and cold and, and isolating. You feel cut off from the world in such a fundamental way. And I think the reason why it's so, so troubling, at least it was to me, is because uh, smell is an unconscious sense. We smell without thinking about it. And so we make a lot of assumptions. It's sort of like the soundtrack of our lives, only it's olfactory. And so when, when it's taken away, what happens is that you feel that that soundtrack of your life is gone. And it's a very emotionally evocative one. And so you feel a sense of unreality. You just don't feel like you're there. You're not as present as you used to be. You're, you're a little bit as if you're watching TV and you can't really touch the world as intimately as you could before. I would never argue that, that smell is, is the most important sense. But what I do argue in my book is that it's the primal sense. You know, it's just so incredibly basic. It was the first. And, and from an evolutionary standpoint, it has so much to do with how humans evolved, how all species evolved. And we aren't nearly as different from you know, a dog or a monkey or a lizard or even, you know, bacteria as we think we are. Now, Bonnie, what happened to your sense of taste when you lost your sense of smell? You write that you thought that your tongue still worked. <laughs> what did you notice was happening when you ate meals? Yeah, um, well, it. I was hoping that I would be able to taste a sweet cookie, a sugar cookie, because after all, what is there to a cookie but just that sugary taste? So I went into a bakery and I put this on my tongue and immediately wanted to spit it out. It was so distorted. It was unrecognizable. So even something like that that you don't think of as having any particular fragrance, really, it does. It's subtle, but it's enough to make the thing without the smell Offensive. So did it have no flavor at all, or did it have just an off-putting flavor? It had. It was just off. As I recall, it was sort of an acrid spin on sugar. Sugar is sweet, but it was not pleasant. Bernie, offensive. And there were some pretty low points for you during this period when you couldn't smell and you couldn't taste. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it, was, I, it was kind of a catastrophe. You know, I think sometimes... The losses that are unexpected hit you harder just because of that. And I never even knew it was possible to lose your sense of smell. So um, all my imagination went right to work on how can I possibly go on living and be happy. I'm a gardener. I'm a garden writer, actually. And so gardening was part of my profession. To not be able to smell my garden, it just felt like, enemy territory. So that's why it was so traumatic. And you write that it was some simple foods that you missed. What, what's an example of something that you missed? I'll tell you what I missed. I missed coffee. <laughs> I'm really a, sort of one of those people. I'm a coffee nut. And so the smells 
the taste, the, the whole thing, the whole ritual of coffee, um, to have it gone. I mean, not that was one one of the things. In fact, I just started drinking it anyway, <laughs> even though it was really pretty disgusting. Bonnie, the story has a happy ending. Thank yes. goodness you regained your sense of smell and taste. And can you tell me the moment when you realized it was about a year later that it was all coming back? Okay, I was I was in my garden, of course. I had sort of suspected that things might be getting better, but I kept telling myself if I smelled something that I was making it up. I smelled my dog's poop, and I thought, oh, well, you know, that's just wishful thinking. But then one day, I was in my garden, it was spring, and I was weeding a plant called cat mint, which has a very herby, pungent, unmistakable, one-of-a-kind smell. That's when I decided I wasn't making it up because I couldn't. And at that point, I was, I just can't tell you, delirious with joy. <laughs> and it's not often you hear someone say that I smelled my dog's excrement, but I thought <laughs> it was too good, too good to be true. Yes, exactly. But at that the happiest point, smell of my life. <laughs> but at that point, it was real. It, you were sensing the world again. Yes. Do you know what had happened? What had repaired itself exactly? Well, it, as it turns out, the only cells in the brain that have the capacity to repair themselves in the brain, the only neurons, are olfactory cells. And they began to divide because there was enough of the cell tissue left, probably just a tiny bit, but just enough. So they began to divide. And over the course of, you know, nine months or so, I had almost fully recovered. Bonnie Blodgett is the author of Remembering Smell, a memoir of losing and discovering the primal sense. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Sure, it was fun. Thank you for having me. Okay, here comes that perennial question when we're speaking of human behavior, what's going on in the brain to account for it? In this case, what circuits allow us to experience the aroma and flavor of coffee, for example, and why did Bonnie's inability to smell rob her of her ability to taste? Coming up, the new discipline that investigates how the brain experiences flavor, neurogastronomy. Also, tricking our taste buds to thinking bitter foods are sweet. It might just help feed the world. Future food chemistry and plots against our palates. But then anything goes on our tasteless show. On Big Picture Science. Good afternoon or morning. I'm Gordon Shepard. I'm a professor of neuroscience at the Yale University School of Medicine. Well, good morning or afternoon, Gordon. Gordon Shepard has done some important basic research on understanding how neurons are organized in our brains, which is lucky for him because that's the best place to find neurons, lots of them. The neurobiologist constructed one of the first computer models of brain cells, and he's made important imaging studies of the olfactory system in the brain, how the brain processes odors. And as we heard from Bonnie Blodgett, smell and taste are intertwined. 
But according to Gordon Shepard, the sensation of taste is really the perception of smell. His lab researches how we experience flavor, and it's turned up an intricate system in the brain that spawned a new field of science, neurogastronomy. Now, we hear what you might be asking, but Gordon Shepard's already answered it. His book, Neurogastronomy, How the Brain Creates Flavor and Why It Matters. Okay, Gordon, I'm about to eat a lemon cookie here baked by our colleague Barbara. I'd like to share this with you, but of course that's a little difficult. But as I bite into it, would you be willing to tell me in brief what's going on as I, you know, as I do that, what I'm tasting and that sort of thing? Well, I don't usually listen to people while they're eating, but uh, this time I'll make an exception. <laughs> I'll try not to. Uh, noise about. Okay, so I'm biting into it. It's kind of crunchy. I already yeah, taste I some lemon. Cr- I can hear the crunch. Can you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Now smack your lips. Well, okay, there you go. I'm not used to that. All right. So what's going on? So your uh, sensory systems are all being activated by that one little cookie inside your mouth. And uh, they are activating a whole stream of information coming in through the different sensory systems. And uh, you may not realize it, but the main one that's giving you this, uh, the flavor of that cookie is smell. Really? I, I've never thought that I had a very good uh, sense of smell. You know, what I taste, I mean, to me, it, it, I don't even notice the smell. I, I, I feel immediately lemon in my mouth. But, yeah. But, but that smell? Yeah, that smell. Uh, just as you can sniff in and, uh, and sense the scent of a, a lemon, while you have that lemon taste in your mouth, that lemon-laden cookie in your mouth, you are actually sensing it through your nose, but it's coming up to your nose from the back of your mouth. As you chew, you're releasing what are called volatiles, the molecules from that cookie that then go into the, the air at the back of your mouth, and you're actually sensing that flavor while you're breathing out, which carries those, that uh, lemon scent uh, up to your smell receptors in the top of your nose, uh, and that's what's giving you that uh, sense of flavor. So it's not going uh, via, you know, coming out my mouth and then going back into my nose. I mean, if I put a a, a, a clothespin over my nose and tried the taste test again, yeah. I would still taste lemon because the smell's going a different pathway. So, so it's it's uh, lemon whether you're breathing in or breathing out. But when it's in your mouth, the only way, unless you uh, chew with your mouth open, the only way that that scent can get up to your nose is from the back of your mouth up through what's called the nasopharynx. Uh, we're almost totally unaware of this while it's happening, and yet it's clear that if you have your mouth closed, that's the only way that air is going to carry the scent of lemon to your nose. So in the case of Bonnie Blodgett, whom we just heard from, she lost her sense of smell, uh, but she also lost her sense of taste. When she lost her sense of smell, that was via any aperture that would bring the molecules to her smell sensors, right? Right. That's exactly what this is showing, that much of what we call flavor or what we call, quote, taste, um, is actually due to the sense of smell. Uh, Fortunately for her, it did come back after a while. I I sort of wonder whether people who are renowned as chefs and so forth, if anybody has done any tests on these people to see if they have an enhanced ability to distinguish various smells. So what one of the things that I cover in the book is how we're uh, increasingly appreciating that for humans, what matters is not so much 
the number and the sensitivity of the different sensory receptors we have for different smells, but how much brain power we bring to that, brain power that no other species has, that we use to discriminate and to elaborate all the properties of the smells that, that we take in and that enrich the sense of flavor that we get from our foods. So this is why you're studying what's called neurogastronomy, which yeah. I believe is a new field, right? I mean, this idea of how we process these, uh, these data that are coming in from our mouth and our nose. So that's exactly it. I wanted to uh, give a, an identity to what I think is an emerging field that combines so much of what different people are doing into what we sense as flavor. And in order to uh, emphasize that, I thought calling this a new field, just like molecular gastronomy was an attempt to emphasize that one can analyze food at the molecular level to see the kinds of, of flavors it gives. Uh, neurogastronomy is an even larger field that is centered on the brain and the fact that flavor is not actually in the food we eat. The flavor is created by the brain out of the molecules of the food that we eat. Well, that sounds rather similar to me to our ability to distinguish various colors. Exactly. Oh, okay. you, you answer the question right, 100%. Oh, all right, all right. Because, you know, really, we only have three color receptors That's in right. our eyes, right? That's you right. Know, essentially red, green, blue, whatever. And, That's right. And, and yet, we, we, you know, we see a whole rainbow That's it. of colors. That's so what you're saying is that we only have a certain number of uh, tastes, what, sour and, and salty and bitter and... And sweet, sweet, and there's one other, umami. I, I don't umami. know what that is. Can, can you give me an example of something that has a pure umami taste? Yeah, meat has a lot of umami. Oh, okay. Uh, the uh, amino acid glutamate is supposed to have uh, an umami taste. Gordon and I just had this lemon cookie, all right? And it tastes like lemon, but that's not one of our five basic tastes. So is, is, is the way this works then that, you know, my brain takes uh, a little bit of sweet and a little bit of salty and whatever— and, it, you know, it reprocesses that into lemon in the same way that my eyes turn a little bit of red and a little bit of green mm. into yellow, yeah. right? Yeah. So a lot more was actually going on in your brain when you uh, ate that cookie. So first of all, you looked at that cookie before you ate it, didn't you? Well, I certainly did. And it's yellow, by the way. Well, so that actually was the beginning of how your brain created that flavor because you already had begun to construct that flavor by just looking at it. So you had an expectation, right? So you have expectations, and so you immediately began to realize that it's in your mouth because your touch uh, receptors told you that it's there in your mouth and it's starting to change as you chew it. Your sense of taste, sweet, salt, sour, and bitter, uh, and umami also came into play as you chewed on it. The sense of smell then came into play as the volatile molecules came out of the cookie and up the back of your mouth to your nose, the sense of hearing actually was quite important because, as you said, this is a nice, crunchy cookie. Hmm. And crunchiness turns out to be one of the most favored qualities that people say they uh, expect in the food that they eat. I, I'm sure there are books that have been written about how important the search for exotic foods, for spices, whatever, has been in the evolution of civilization. This, it, it's, it seems like humans really are foodies in ways that your 
pet parakeet <laughs> is probably not. I mean, uh, is there some reason for that? Why are we so hung up on, on food at a, at a level that I don't see in most of my pets? So think energy. So what do we get from our food? The essential thing is we get energy that keeps us alive, et cetera, et cetera. One of the new ways that we're thinking about smell, which I tried to introduce in the book, is the idea that not only is smell important for the flavor of the food that we consume as moderns, but it must have been important for uh, the evolution of humans. And someone I've been much influenced by is uh, Professor Richard Wrangham, an anthropologist at Harvard, who has developed research and the concept that the control of fire was a critical step in the evolution of humans and that it occurred much earlier than most people think, maybe almost two million years ago, at a time when our ancestors uh, suddenly had a great spurt in brain growth from uh, a predecessor to uh, very near the modern form. And so that increase in, in brain size he postulates, was possible because fire gave the ability to abstract more energy from particularly cooking meats, and it made the meat more attractive in terms of the kind of flavor we get from cooked meat. And so that made the sense of smell then a very important factor in our love for meat and the added energy that it gave. So uh, being foodies may be responsible for the fact that we're intelligent. You said it. Gordon Shepard, thank you so much for a very tasteful discussion. Oh, thank you. Gordon Shepard is a neurobiologist at the Yale University School of Medicine. He has a nose for research and a taste for fascinating science. His book is Neurogastronomy, How the Brain Creates Flavor and Why It Matters. And you'll find a photo of the lemon cookie that Seth ate and Barbara baked, well, not the exact one that he ate, but from the same batch, on our blog at bigpicturescience.org. Uh, hi there. Hey, listen, we do a weekly science radio show, and I'd, I'd just like to order something a little bit different, not really on the menu. Is that okay? Sure, we do special orders all the time. Well, okay. What I really want is a uh, kale broccoli and spinach burger, but uh, can you have the chef make it taste as if it was really beef with cheese and bacon? Well, I don't know about that. It probably won't end up tasting like beef when we get done with it. Well, then, uh, how about just a regular hamburger? Would you like onions with that? So how did that go? Did you get anything to eat? I did, but I have to tell you that they uh, resorted to a real uh, cheeseburger. That's what it was. With bacon, I think. It tastes <laughs> Poor great. You. Well, yes. Well, it turns out that they couldn't fill my order because, you know, they, they just didn't have wheatgrass and barley that they could make taste like beef. Maybe not in that restaurant, but the situation is different in Chicago. The city's premier chef, Homaru Kantu, you could say, is a taste illusionist, and he's eager to use his inventive culinary skill and chemistry to distort your taste and optical senses. Okay, so he'll set in front of you a plate of beef nachos dripping with cheese. Mm. Yum! <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> but take a bite. Your taste buds erupt in flavors sweet sugary chips, cheese that is actually mango sorbet, and the taste of shredded chocolate. It just looks like beef. Come back for dinner. His pork sandwich resembles a Cuban cigar, ashes and all. Just doesn't sound terribly appetizing. 
But as good as Homaro Kantu is at creating figments of food imagination, these culinary chimeras, these hallucinations of haute cuisine, it's really all designed to lead to a more ambitious goal, to rewire our perception of taste to help us eat more nutritiously. And to do that, he draws on an unusual property of a West African fruit called the miracle berry, that when you eat it, masks your taste receptors so that bitter food is palatable. It makes crabgrass taste like basil, which may help us turn unedible crops into cuisine in places where it's needed most. But first, that dish that resembles a Cuban cigar. Yeah, so the ash is actually the spice that goes into making the Cuban pork sandwich. The cigar is, uh, we take the meat from the, the Cuban pork sandwich, wrap it in bread or a Cuban bread called a bolillo, and then we actually take collard greens, which are pickled. We use the pickling liquid that's uh, used with the pork, and we wrap it in collard greens, and it looks like a cigar. Just for fun, we throw an edible label on there that says Cohiba. What is the sensation of biting into something that looks like a cigar? Well, I tell you, it's entertainment. That's just pure entertainment. There is no point. There's no scientific breakthrough here. You're just going to get an $1.99 ashtray. It looks like there's ash in there, and then you eat the cigar. Where we can change it is we actually use a little berry called a miracle berry. And, you know, this is uh, one of the most profound food products that I've ran across, period. When you stop and think about, you know, what changing your taste buds does, it really changes the entire economics of food. So let's say, you know, this berry, when you eat it, it makes lemons taste as sweet as lemonade. And so what I spent eight years doing is taking acidic foods and putting them into desserts and pastries and then removing the sugar. And so that's where science can play a role in enabling us to replicate all of the foods that we grew up with, mom's homemade apple pie, ice cream, sodas, junk food, and making them healthy. So it sounds like what you're doing, it's not just an optical illusion. What it is 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 you're going deeper and actually tricking the brain by manipulating the taste receptors and what we come to expect when we put something in our in our mouth. And you use this berry called the miracle berry, and I believe that it masks taste receptors? What, what does it do? So you have two taste receptors on each taste bud. One tastes sour and bitter. The other one tastes everything else. This berry, which you can grow as a houseplant, actually has a little protein that latches onto your sour receptor, and it blocks it for anywhere from five minutes to, say, an hour. So when you eat sour foods, it goes down the other side, and it basically tells your brain that whatever you're eating that's sour is super sweet. So You know, when you think about our economy of food, corn, soybeans, everything, it's all based on your tongue. I mean, everything. Your tongue controls the fate of the world when you stop and think about how crops are sold, you know, commodities, the whole shot. So when you go changing somebody's tongue and you show them that they don't need sugar anymore, well, that's a big game changer. And at this point, you know, I I still have yet to meet one person that's done this and not been completely blown away just blown out of their mind because you know when you when you do when you change your tongue you're changing the very basic fabric of who you are as a human so when you say you're changing your tongue if you bite into a lemon which is very sour of course you can make that lemon taste like lemonade by using this miracle berry 
Yeah, you basically just eat the berry. It's like a cranberry. You just eat it, except this berry has a little protein that does a neat little trick. And so, you know, if lemons taste like lemonade, you can take the lemon juice, put it in soda water, and then that's going to taste like Sprite. I mean, it is actually better than Sprite. And not only that, so it tastes like junk food, but it's actually healthy for you. You're getting, you know, a vitamin C-rich lemon water. And it tastes like a something that's really horrible for your body. So you take it a step further, add some eggs and flour to your, your new lemon soda that's sweet, you know, and now you got a cookie. And then, you know, let's just take that and add it to some non-fat sour cream. Sour cream tastes like cheesecake. So you add all that to the non-fat sour cream. Now you got a cheesecake that tastes amazing. And so you can just keep adding and tweaking. And then, you know, eventually what we did after eight years of research is we replaced every single dessert out there we got rid of all the sugar. Now, but in some ways, aren't you keeping the addicts addicted because they think they're eating sugar? Wouldn't it be better to just try to get everybody off of sugar and have them love the taste of kale or spinach? You know what? That's never going to work. I mean, look at the demand. McDonald's is increasing its revenue every year. They've been doing it for over 50 years. Junk food is always on the uptick. And so you're never going to get rid of the basic human demand for sweetness and fat. What you need to do is replace all of these sweeteners and fat products with healthy products, not chemicals. I was interested in one of the experiments that you did in um, in making barbecue sauce, and, and maybe this is also getting to the point of your wanting to expand this to help places in the world that don't have some of these foods, and also just to, to cut down on the cost of transportation, um, of moving foods around the world. Now, I can make barbecue sauce, and you can make it with molasses and ketchup and onion. You don't need any beef. But you made barbecue sauce out of crab apples and hay. Is that right? Yeah. So we had this show on the Discovery Networks called Future Food. And when you take this miracle berry and you, you know, you block your ability to taste sour foods. So, you know, if you eat sour foods, they'll taste sweet. So what we did is we took some crab apples, hay, and cactus, three things that you don't normally eat. Um, the crab apples taste really sour and tart. The hay, we literally, we lit the hay on fire, smoked the apples and the cactus, and then we blended it with some of the hay. And it actually tasted like a tomatillo barbecue sauce. It's kind of crazy. What prompted you to set the hay on fire? Well, barbecue sauce, you need a little smokiness to it, you know, so you need that dark color. So you light the hay on fire and you use that to smoke the apples and cook them and, uh, you know, cook down the cactus. And so, you know, the interesting thing about this berry, I mean, this berry is, it's really fascinating. In 1725, a French explorer named Chevalier de Marche discovered it. And here's how he discovered it. This is like a game changer. He discovered 32 tribes in West Africa, and only one of these tribes didn't have a famine problem. And he described this tribe as eating this berry and then eating fermented wood and grass and all of this stuff that no other tribe made palatable. So when you ferment things, they become sour. And they were literally making cookies and soups and all this stuff out of weeds. And after I read that, you know, the light bulb went on and I was like, wow, if you change your taste buds, now all of this stuff out there that's growing that's non-poisonous to the human body becomes food. Can you give me an example, a specific example of a part of the world where you, using those local or native plants, you could make a delicious meal that was also nutritious and, and you wouldn't have to import foods? Well, I'll tell you a clear example. I met somebody 
at uh, the TED conference a couple of years ago who was traveling to Haiti to help people with earthquake relief. And uh, I gave him a case of miracle berries, and I told him, hey, take this over there, feed it to these people, and see if they just want to eat some of these grasses, you know, boil them, uh, do whatever you're going to do to them, just cook them in some fashion, make sure they're not poisonous. Over half of these people went back for seconds. So rather than eating these mud cookies so they get a sense of fulfillment but no nutrient value, uh, over half of these people, without ever eating this stuff before, went back and ate this food again completely intuitively. So if you can just eat things that grow in the wild and make them delicious, more delicious than what we're currently offered with agriculture, then you have a better tasting product and something that is more ecologically sound for the environment. Omar Kantu, thank you so much for speaking with us. Well, thank you. Homero Kantu displays his Kantu attitude as a chef at the Moto restaurant, and he owns and operates the Kantu Designs firm, both of which are in Chicago. Okay, you know what you like to eat, I know what I like to eat, but what would an alien choose to chow down on? Could you be dinner for E.T.? That idea might not appeal to you, but then again, this is our tasteless show on Big Picture Science. Guess who's coming to dinner? You remember that episode of The Twilight Zone where the guests were a race of nine-foot-tall aliens? They arrived friendly. They wanted to help straighten out the political and environmental mess we've made here on Earth. But then their how-to manual was translated, and it turned out that its title was How to Serve Man. Sounds as if they were being helpful, but in fact they weren't being quite so obsequious. This is flight number 914 from Earth to our planet. We will be taking off in three minutes. Mr. Chambers, don't get on that ship. The rest of the book, to serve men, it's a cookbook. So are humans just an ingredient for soup as far as aliens are concerned? Do we have any idea what another race of beans would eat? or what the food web on their planet would be like. Nikki Parenteau does, or at least she can speculate. She's an astrobiologist at the SETI Institute. So, Nikki, in nine out of ten movies or TV shows I see about aliens, they seem to want to have us as some sort of tasty snack. But is there any reason to believe that an alien really would have any interest in eating us? You know, so when we think about what an alien needs to survive, I think we can talk about what's a universal requirement of life. We need liquid water. Life as we know it needs liquid water. We also need a source of energy, and we also need some nutrients or building blocks. So aliens would also need these things. So to relate it to what we know as humans, we eat organic material and we breathe oxygen. If alien life operated on the same sort of metabolism, they would need a source of organics, which, quite frankly, we could provide. We are a giant organic being. And, you know, maybe they don't breathe air, but they would need some other type of oxidant, you know, be it oxygen or sulfate or some other thing. But certainly, you know, we could provide, we could be a food source. 
what would be required of their biochemistry, if you will, in order for us to be a, a palatable food source for them? I mean, they, they might have a different biochemistry than we do. Certainly, they could. And while organics is, are only one thing that they can eat, they, they might also to be, able, be able to eat inorganic material. So in that case, we don't have anything to worry about. So what if they eat like a stinky gas like sulfide or hydrogen or, or what have you? And we know that that's possible because microbes on Earth do that. Well, I'm kind of intrigued by what you say that they might be able to eat kind of what I consider inorganic stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, and, and sort of take the raw materials directly from the inorganic environment and turn it into whatever they need to turn it into, Klingon flesh, whatever. <laughs> because I don't eat sand. I mean, except accidentally at the beach occasionally when I do a face plant. But it doesn't appeal to me, and presumably it doesn't appeal to me because it doesn't do me any good to eat sand, right? But they might be able to do stuff like that. Oh, certainly. You know, anything that can donate an electron. So, again, any reducing compound, you know, be it organics or, or inorganics, they can, microbes can eat rocks. If I were a microbe, I could pick up a chunk of, say, pyrite, fool's gold, and I could eat it. As long as I have something to breathe, it's just going to be a flow of electrons, and I'm good to go. You know, as we go out and search for life elsewhere, it's likely that the type of life we would encounter first is microbial. And we study extremophiles on the Earth because that tells us the wide range of conditions over which life can exist. So there's no lack of food in the cosmos if you're a microbe. Yeah. Yep. So I think it must really come down to this if we're considering the possibility that we may end up on the uh, hors d'oeuvres tray at a Klingon party. It's a matter of how universal our biochemistry is. I mean, is it going to be very similar to theirs? Is there any reason to think that terrestrial biochemistry, at least the kind used by larger organisms, the ones we like to interact with, mm -hmm. that that's somehow the best design, that that's a very likely design, that's the favored design, or is there no reason to think that? That's a great question. There's a lot of people who spend a lot of time thinking about that, you know, the universality of life. There are some people that view that the metabolism that happened on early Earth could also happen on a planet orbiting another star, and that potentially they would have their own type of evolution, we shall say, because what we have to remember is that organisms evolve within the context of their environment. So to the degree that the environment on an exoplanet would be different from the environment on the early Earth, yeah, we might expect some slight differences, but I think the biochemistry would be, you know, there would be some similarities between the biochemistries. So it sounds like this is not totally unfounded, this idea that we might actually be a suitable food. You know, I think it's within the realm of possibility. Like I said, we're a source of organic, so. You know, I kind of wonder, Nikki, if this whole business of hungry sci-fi aliens isn't just something primal for four billion years, right, or something like that, here on the Earth, one of the greatest fears of all the life forms was becoming prey for some predator. So we kind of just assume that the aliens are not here to engage us in a game of canasta or whatever, that they're here to, <laughs> they're here to eat us because that, that's something that's concerned us for a long time. Certainly, you know, and, and I will fully admit, even to this day, I have a primal fear when I'm out in the backcountry in Yellowstone sampling hot springs and what have you. I sleep in my tent at night. And I worry about a grizzly bear potentially coming in and dining on me. Yeah. It's something I think it could be universal to humans. It may not be a grizzly bear. You might be afraid of sharks, but we have this fear. 
Are humans particularly good when it comes to being a rich source of nutrients? I mean, are we better than some of these other animals, like the squirrels outside the building here? Well, some of us, like myself, might have a little bit more fat, which yields more energy. So, you know, yeah, we could be, and also we're larger than a squirrel, so we get, I guess, maybe more bang for the buck for the aliens to dine on us. Okay, so uh, I've always sort of poo-pooed this whole idea that the aliens have come here to eat us, but it sounds to me like well, there's some chance they might. One thing that seems pretty certain, they will want to eat something. They will want to eat something. Now, as I mentioned, it could be rocks and gases and organic things, but we might be in a little bit of trouble if they're searching for organics. Nikki Parenteau, thank you so much for uh, talking with us. Thanks for having me, Seth. Nikki Parenteau is an astrobiologist at the SETI Institute. Okay, well, all this talk about food is making me hungry. I love food. And, of course, I also love astronomy, and so I wonder if I could combine both those interests, you know, something a bit more ambitious and simply biting into one of those novelty packages of astronaut ice cream. Well, we've been talking about gastronomy, but did you notice that gastronomy has the word astronomy in it swallowed up like so many stars in a black hole? Well, actually, I have noticed that, but so what? Well, fortunately, there is a so what. Culinary chef Marcus Hotakanen. He's combined his love for hot, dense matter and haute cuisine into a single serving the Gastronomical Cookbook. We've been talking so far in the show about how food tastes, but any good chef knows presentation is key. So, stargazers, how about a bowl of soup where the cream swirls like a spiral galaxy right out of the Messier catalog? Or a red leaf, red bean, red basil salad that resembles the terrain of a certain rusty, dusty planet. Astronomical photos, recipes, and the photos of the completed astronomical recipes are found in the Finnish chef's book. We found some rather interesting dishes. Some of them are related to the object. For example, the sun goes with hot and spicy food, the Mars with, with color red, and so on. So that's the idea. So you tried to sort of coordinate the recipe with at least the physical properties of these other worlds. Uh, presumably yes. you're not using vegetables or uh, <laughs> other food products from the worlds themselves. No, and, and we didn't know how, for example, Saturn would taste, so we had to just use the other characteristics. Well, well, there's a lot of sulfuric acid in the atmosphere. That doesn't sound terribly tasty. Well, Marcus, we wanted to try one of your recipes here, so uh, with Molly's help, we've... Uh, begun to assemble one of the recipes from the Mars chapter. Hi, Marcus. Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm fine. I'm hungry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. She's got a desk full of uh, ingredients. It, it kind of looks like uh, the prep table at my favorite fast food restaurant. This is going to be a red bean salad. Molly said it. Yeah, that's right. Now, Marcus, you know this recipe, right? Yeah, I know. Okay. I'll tell you what I have here, and maybe you can walk me through just the last stages of it. We've been marinating beans and onions in what you have here, soy sauce, wine, vinegar, mm -hmm. and olive yeah. oil. And I should yeah. say I had a lot of prep help with our assistant producer, Rena, behind the scenes. Okay, so we have that marinating, and then I have a bunch of salad, red leaf salad. So you just mix the salad and put it straight on the plate, then spoon the beans on the top okay. and uh, 
more or less, that's it. So I'll put the final touches on this. I'm spooning the um, the beans and the onion onto this salad, okay? Mm. There's a lot of beans. Yeah. You see that, Seth? I, you know, I haven't seen so many beans since the Boston Bean Festival. <laughs> okay. A lot of bean pleasure there. And I'm, I'm chewing wow. a little bit. I have to admit I've been eating a little bit of this. Well, okay. that's, that's so good. This is the red bell pepper. It's all been, okay, that's a lot of red. This is actually quite beautiful. And sun-dried okay. tomatoes. All right, the salad is prepared. And Seth, you want to describe what we what we have there? Well, actually, if somebody put this in front of you at a restaurant, you would probably ooh and ah. I mean, it looks pretty good. It's got the green lettuce, and it's got the beans and the peppers. And I suppose it looks sort of Marsy, although who knows what people would really eat on Mars. But Is this supposed to look like Mars? Or why, why should this salad, this beautiful red salad, remind me of the red planet? Of course, uh, as you notice, the basic basic idea is the color in this case. It's it's red, 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 and red. But then there are beans, and uh, as we know, there are lots of small pebbles on the surface of Mars wherever you go. So that's the part that is physically like Mars. But hopefully they taste better than the small stones on the surface. You know, all that green. I mean, Mars may once have been more green than it is now, back in its mm-hmm. salad days, come to think of it, <laughs> yeah. four, four yeah. billion years ago. So yeah. maybe the salad sucks. festival on, yeah. on Mars. Okay, I'm going to eat a little bit while Seth talks to you, but first let's just take a bite and see how this is. <laughs> all right. This looks great. Seth, you can have some later. i, I got to say that the reality actually even looks better than the pictures in the cookbook, and the cookbook pictures are always something to strive for. You it's know, good. I have to say, it's it's really good. I don't know if this is what Mars would taste like, but that's not the point, is it? Fine, yeah. I think that I'm going to sit back and just eat my lunch early right now and, and let you uh, talk to Seth Marcus. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you'll notice, Marcus, she didn't offer any of that salad to me. You can have it later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, you know, you have other astronomical objects and phenomena in your book. Can can you give me a sort of a, a description of some of those other chapters? Well, my favorite is, in general, the moon, of course, because I, I was five years old when I saw Neil and Buzz walking on the moon. Uh, and, uh, of course, as we all know, the moon is made of cheese. Yes. So all the dishes with the moon are very much cheesy, and uh, actually every one of them has cheese as one of the main ingredients. Sort of like lunar fondue? Mm, yeah, that might be a good idea, but I think the uh, moon is a bit too cold for that. Oh, cold cheese, or the hard cheese. <laughs> I, I know yeah, so you, <laughs> you also have onion rings for, for Saturn. That sounds appropriate. Mm-hmm. What, what, what other mm-hmm. possibilities have you found? Well, uh, with giant planets and comets, in, in many cases, the idea is to have something cold, even though we wanted to have warm food also. For example, with the comets, there's uh, oven ice cream, and it was rather difficult to take it off the oven in time. You say you put this cold comet in the oven. Sounds to yeah. me kind of like a representation yeah. of what happens to comets, which, after all, are cold. They come from the outer solar system. Then they pass by the sun. They get heated up a little bit. So this is sort of baked Alaska, except it's baked Halley or something. Yeah, that's right. And that's the idea. So it's cold inside, but hot on the surface. So, Seth, why don't you try some of the salad here? Okay, I'll pass, pass it, it over to you. Yeah. Okay, this uh, salad looks actually pretty good. I think I ate most of the dried tomatoes, sorry. Oh, you can say well, what's left is fairly wet with the dressing, but wetter than on Mars, I'll say that. Although Mars used to be wet, right? Well, it did, but, you know. We but it wasn't wet with oil and wine vinegar and soy sauce. Well, we don't know that for sure yet. <laughs> That's true. Mm. Wait we for the chemical su- analysis to come We back. do suspect it. You know, it's pretty good. It is yep. good and healthy. Okay. Yum. Well, Marcus Hotokainen, thank you so much for uh, 
sharing your recipes with us and talking to us today. Thanks, Marcus. Thank you. Marcus Hotokainen is an astronomer, a chef, and the author of the Gastronomical Cookbook. And thanks to our production team, Always Tasteful, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Rena Shaklesko. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to our tasteless show. Hope we didn't offend you. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, hey, why not go to Facebook? become a fan of the program. You can leave your comments there as well, and we will read them. Yes, and if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because it feeds your appetite for electromagnetic radiation, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know that you like the program. 